I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of I've Never Had Original Thought with me, Becky Lee. I hope you're having a wonderful day. Um, I'm sending all my love as always. And this week's episode, I am joined by the amazing Lily Rose Fitzmaurice, who is a PhD off holder from the University of Cambridge. And she is currently studying education and childhood studies and everything to do with that. And admittedly, this conversation's a little bit indulgent for me. But with that being said, I hope you enjoy the episode. And yeah, please rate it five stars and whatnot. Okay, speak to you at the end. Bye. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of I've Never Had an Original Thought. This week I am joined by Lily Rose. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Also, just thank you so much for having me on. I'm I'm super excited. No, don't worry. I honestly, I was talking to Lenaria about this, about how you are so, you're so involved in some of the things that I'm interested in, so this is pretty indulgent for me anyway. Oh, that's so sweet, that's so sweet. So I can't wait to get to um, We're just going to geek out about all things education because it's something we have in common. Yes, I love it, amazing. So for those who don't know you and what you get up to, why don't you introduce yourself? Um, hi, uh, my name is Lily. Lily. Um, I so I'm currently yeah I'm currently studying. Um, I'm on a one plus three, so I'm in the education fac um, at Cambridge. But I um, yeah my interests are kind of in the relationship between ideas around children, students, um, higher education, early education, and children's literature. Yeah, I mean, I mean, but I also don't, I, I never know how to articulate myself as, as a human. Um, <laughs> although one thing I'll say is I'm trying to. I'm trying to start saying more and more that I um, like I work as a student, even though that doesn't sound mm, as why is that? I am, than I am a student. Because I feel like it's it, it, it ensures that I'm recognizing myself as an embodied thing outside of just work. Yeah, I get you. I get you. That's but, interesting. Yeah. Well, stuff that we're going to go into. But as you know, the first question I ask everyone is who or what is one person, idea or event that has changed the way that you see the world? Um, So I've been thinking on this one because I feel like this, I mean, there's been multiple pockets, spaces, people, um, like Blitbart's apartment, Ayato. um, Yeah, but I've had kind of two, although, I mean, it's classically the narratives we tell ourselves. um, (laughs) Two two kind of, one just happened really recently. So it's just like really in my mind and it was kind of like paradigm shift to my thinking. And another is kind of what I think in some ways kind of was, was on the trajectory to how I've ended up here. Um, So just tell you both. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Anyway, um, so the one that happened recently was 
I think if we'd done this podcast like a few weeks ago, I probably would have maybe uh, kind of lauded criticality and the need to be like for critical thinking a, a bit too much like the Holy Grail. Yeah. Um, and I ended up in a conversation with a friend recently over coffee and he kind of pointed this out to me a little bit. And I thought it was, and it kind of, it definitely made me think because I recently was given information. I'm going to speak in, in kind of vague terms. Yeah. And I knew something was off, but I didn't want to believe something was off. And you know, my friends were like, that's a bit off. And yeah. I was like, no, oh, no, it's fine. Um, and lo and behold, uh, it was it was a non-ideal situation. What got me thinking was, was that, you know, if I, if in different contexts, if I was given a piece of information, I would, I kind of look at it through this like critical lens. And, um, but I, I think what it made me realize was the extent to which we are embodied beings, right? There's, there's, there's desires, there's subjectivity. It's always messy. Um, and so you can't, I think on some level, I thought that critical, critical thinking would kind of act as a shield in a way. It meant that if I'm always critical of all the things I come into contact with, then I'll be safe from being blinded mm. by something. But actually, um, when you when you want to believe something, that that you can blind yourself. There's uh, Zizek calls it the the disavowal of reality or the exclusionary gesture of refusing to see. Mm. Um, and he talks about it in relation to They Live, the film. It's like a cult film. It's, okay, it's very fun. It's basically where you have a, a character. I don't I don't know if you know the film, but it's basically where you <laughs> uh, the whole film. Basically, there's like media advertisements, and yeah. this character, the protagonist, puts on a pair of glasses. And when he has the glasses on, he can see the subliminal messages of everything. And okay. that actually half the population are aliens. It's all good fun. Um, but there's a there's a scene where a character just does not want to put the glasses on. And they like physically fight because he's like, you have to put them on. I mean, it's kind of like has, has the flavor of the Matrix, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and it reminded me of this. It's like there's there's an extent to which we talk about awareness. They need to be aware and be critical. But actually, we also sometimes we don't want to, to accept what, what we're seeing and, and what we what we kind of know to be true. And so I think this really got me thinking about when we're thinking of these early classrooms and how we create these spaces for criticality and, and facilitating. We also really do need to think about our relationships with ourselves, our sense of self, um, because it's, it's just, it's entirely bound. Um, so yeah, that was a that's that was the kind of so interesting that reminded me of like i don't know what context i learned it in but someone was like we're not rational creatures we're rationalizing creatures like we're always driven oh, by something I love and we just find a way to <laughs> rationalize it and i was like oh my god yeah of course we do <laughs> oh my god i love that that's so yeah that's that's so it um and i think i think it is partly this this i think the extent to which yeah we we negate the embodiedness and i think this is i mean in terms of education as well um, so often we praise we we praise behaviors that are kind of overcompensatory, right? Um, like mm. perfectionism and working ourselves in a way that is entirely disembodied. But these things will come back to haunt us. Oh, when yeah. we, we need to be critical um, of a situation, but we are dealing with all this kind of other mess of, of feeling and emotion that we were not being given, like kind of holding spaces to deal with earlier on. So, but I love that rationalizing. That's so that's so yeah, funny. That's yeah. So and what was the second one? <laughs> Um, so the second one was was actually um, I think what kind of got me to, to to the kind of course I'm in and, and what I'm what I'm looking at, and it was essentially um, when I was in so I I went I worked in Costa Rica on like an early kind of childcare project, and when I was out there I um, I was I was mugged by these kind of two men with knives. Um, oh my god, that's horrible! I'm so sorry. 
I don't know, it's, it's, it's okay. But um, at the at the time afterwards, um, so I had this experience, and I think suddenly uh, on project, I became obsessed with this notion that like we needed to focus on the children feeling safe. Basically, yeah. this became like a big kind of. But I I think I got back and I was reflecting on that and my emphasis on this idea of safe spaces. Um, and I realized the extent to which actually it wasn't the children that didn't feel safe. I didn't. And I was like bringing that into the space. I was kind of voicing a narrative that was really more about me. And then I discovered this text um, by Jacqueline Rose, who now, I mean, I think fundamentally she's significant no matter what, no matter where you sit on the on this kind of strand of her work. But um, she it's called the, um, the Case of Peter Pan or the Impossibility of Children's Fiction. And she basically argues in it that children's literature tells us nothing about children it tells us what adults desire like for and about children um and I kind of just started that really that was a a moment for me when I started to think about what do I even think a child is like it was the first time I asked myself what do I believe a child to be because that will form and influence all the work that I do with children and the work we do collectively with children I started thinking about how we we uh, weaponize the idea of the child in different spaces um and so that kind of got me thinking about yeah what 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 is a child um and I think that question has kind of uh niggled at me to this point so I ended up in my liberal arts undergraduate thesis I ended up kind of looking at this um and the relationship between between our ideas around children and then children if if we can even um yeah discuss them together and then I ended up on this course so I'm currently on the master's of um critical approaches to children's literature um but I'm kind of looking at this idea of children's agency and different models around children's agency and the extent to which we can talk about this kind of like quote unquote real children. Um, and then, and then, yeah, the PhD, I think will probably similarly be in a similar kind of trajectory. Yeah. That's so interesting. My mind is running like a thousand <laughs> because also like th- I, when I think about people's reflections on opinions of children, it can be so culturally specific as well. Yeah, you know, there's no one like homogenous like what a child is or should be. Yeah, absolutely, and it fully it's it's it will fully influence. I think your how yeah how the work is enacted. I mean, it's some I mean classic tropes. You have the like the romantic idea of the child Mm. as you know to the hand of God. Um, You have like the wild child, and each of these different ideas will influence what kind of policy and practices that we we put in place. I was reading actually a really interesting article, um, literally yesterday or the day before. Although my brain is slightly switched off, and I'm not fully present, so um, yeah, I'm sorry if it's a bit vague. But it was talking about the the um, ideas around attention in by education, kind of scholars and theorists during kind of the Age of Enlightenment. So it was looking at Rousseau, Locke, um, Maria Edgeworth. But one of what it was talking about was how different the influence of things like gender and class on ideas around attention. So <clears throat> there was this idea that you shouldn't you shouldn't um, I think was it was it Locke who argued that you shouldn't physically punish uh, a child into learning um, for like to, to get their attention, mm. but somehow it's okay if they're a, a working class child. Or it was the ideas around attention. So I think this was in Rousseau. He kind of in Emile, like the idea of what a, a Emile should be focusing on and how he should pay attention and be a paid attention to was different to. Um, I think the female character is Sophie, but my mind is blanking. Um, so the, the gender, essentially, this idea that for for girls it would be it's it's much more about saying pleasing things, pleasing <laughs> pleasing men, yeah. uh, and being a t- being kind of given attention in a different way. So and how these threads 
can can um kind of simmer for <laughs> for periods of time mm. um in our kind of theory and pedagogy so that's so interesting oh my god I know I have so many questions to ask you but I wanted <laughs> to piggyback of what you're saying because when when I was doing my master's I was looking into reasons why um young girls tend to perform better in school and it was about how like they're socialized to exist in that school space better because they're told to be more like submissive like compliant and it's young boys that are disruptive that's why they don't do as well at ages like 16. That's so yeah that is so interesting I see in in that kind of the the culture of um I mean it's the classic kind of good girl complex right the culture of being good um and how we reinforce that in early I was actually I was thinking I mean in a very in a very minor way and like very early on in my undergraduate career but I was thinking about this in relation to even like advertisements like a lot of Mm. advertisements towards girls like toys is all kind of small play it's like play with these little like Lely Kelly dolls and shoes in the corner or like Polly Pockets whereas a lot of the kind of the toys advertised towards boys was a lot bigger and a lot more like be visible in the world um don't hide (laughs) don't be like minimized um yeah which I thought was really interesting but this yeah that's that's fascinating the idea of um attention and kind of the the narrative of being submissive yeah definitely (laughs) how did how did you get to where you are now like I know that you did liberal arts which I didn't even know existed as a degree and when I heard that people were doing it I was like fuck I picked the wrong degree (laughs) So I, yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I feel super blessed, yeah, to have, to have had the chance to do, um, do lib arts, especially at work. Um, when mm. I discovered that particular department, I knew that was what I wanted. I was yeah. like, this is where, and I will kind of take time until I, until I get in. Um, but I was, yeah, super, super blessed to get in. Um, but liberal arts, so yeah, I, I kind of knew about liberal arts because my sister went to um, AUC in Amsterdam and she did, a, she was kind of in within a liberal arts structure. And I think my interest in it, what kind of got me into a liberal arts course was the fact that I didn't there wasn't any particular content that I was super interested in yeah. but I knew I was interested in in how we learn and think um but I didn't really know what that meant I didn't know kind of how to articulate that interest I just knew that I wanted something that gave me a lot of options um and I think that when I went to the liberal arts open day work that was really emphasized it was about how you work with the content that you're given not yeah. about like this specific information um and that kind of interdisciplinarity um that kind of problem-based approach yeah super appealed to me um, and it was, yeah, so I was yeah, very grateful. And then on the, through the fact that with liberal arts, you can, you can take modules essentially, essentially anywhere in the university, as long as you're cultivating a kind of research area or strand. Yeah. And so, yeah, I was super lucky. I, I kind of ended up taking modules in education in IATL, obviously. Um, and I was, I was kind of circumnavigating around this idea of, of children, or ideas around children, censorship, education. And yeah, that kind of, that kind of, st- kind of developed and then I ended up doing writing my undergraduate thesis and it was from that that I um, discovered this master's which was kind of critical approaches it was engaging with a lot of the same literature that I was interested in and I also discovered uh, Karen Coates my supervisor who was is like is, her work's incredible it's been really interesting so I was super super wanting to work with her and felt yeah. super blessed with the opportunity to um, and then I was just very lucky that I was able to kind of secure funding to to carry on and do the the PhD as well so yeah all very just uh, super blessed lucky um yeah (laughs) and where did your interest from like studying children come from that's interesting I think I I kind of so when I was 16 
it sounds funny now because it's so far from from where I've ended up. But I, I I was I was a sixteen year old that had a sense of like I was I was motivated. I wanted to like work in a business, whatever that meant, whatever sixteen year old thinks it means to work in a business and have a husband <laughs> and like really like play into all those like good old neoliberal values. Yeah. Um, you know, have holidays, whatever. And then this is going to sound like a real uh, kind of cliche as well. But I I went to um, I went on a kind of project. Um, in India and that I think that was good for me in just in terms of I know there's always classically there's we have to raise questions when it comes to any kind of um, volunteer work Mm. Um, but it it, it at least made me ask certain questions it made me think you know wait wait a second is is it like this the world seems to be like a not great place actually yeah and so that, I think at that point, I, I kind of maybe on some level, I had developed a bit of a, you know, save the children narrative, which has its own kind of uh, consequences. But I think being able to having that and then starting to ask the other kind of critical side of that, you know, what do I what am I what do I think a child is and what does that how much is our ideas around children influencing the work? I think that really started to drive me mm. because I I think there's there's a great text by Alice Miller called The Drama of the Gifted Child. And in it, um, she talks this, about this idea of like, why does somebody want to work with a dependent person? And what are you getting out of that dynamic? So she talks about it in relation to analysts. Um, and you have to recognize that there is something that you're getting out of working with someone who is in some way dependent on you. And I think that's something that can be negated when we work with children, that we kind of expect them to pay attention. We expect yeah. them to give us something and be secure and I think that's something we have to challenge in ourselves. Like if we're working with children, we need to be aware of them as as kind of fluid existing beings. And yeah, I think it was just this drive of children, like even the idea of like children's voices. I mean, in some of the work I'm looking at at the minute in relation to children's agency, there's this kind of emphasis on we should talk about children as agents. But if I read we should talk about women as agents, I'd be really irritated. I'd be like, women are agents. Yeah. Um, but so obviously, on, on some level, we, we don't seem to believe that children are agential. And I can understand there's, they're in a kind of state of dependency early on. But it's a messy, it's a really messy area. It's complex. It's hard to, to pin down. But I think, yeah, I just kind of grew a fascination with the whole, yeah, with the whole topic project. And this might be a big question, but what is the state of play right now? Like, where are we at? Are we, this is a big question, are we failing kids? Are we failing them? Like, are we doing a bad job? <laughs> Love it. You know, you always gotta gotta ask the big questions. Are we, <laughs> I think, I think that we, in some respects, I think that we're, I think that there are kinds of environments. I mean, first of all, I mean, the obvious being is that the, the kind of the way we educate obviously isn't going to work for, for all children. Like we need to be thinking more about, you know, and I do think that we educate, like, I mean, kind of the teacher expectancy effect. I think te- there's an extent to which teachers will educate towards certain people differently to others based just purely on a kind of bias that's not always necessarily being acknowledged. But I, I suppose sometimes when I, when I think about this, I think back to the cultures of education. I think this is, this is the thing. I, I think in, like, I'm, I'm kind of really interested in that kind of uh, microsystem, the classroom itself, the, the culture in a class, and how we are what we're fostering are we fostering like a holding environment that is that is dynamic enough that it can withstand real interesting <laughs> questioning and and conversation and i think i mean for me i have i grew up in ireland so i did grow up in a slightly different system but i <laughs> i think back to some of the ways that 
that teachers and classrooms, like teachers behaved in classrooms were formed. I mean, I have this memory and I think it'll always stick by me in terms of that kind of culture of complicity, a bit like we were talking about before in terms of the kind of passivity that's being expected of children and students as just kind of consumers and sponges and, and all of that kind of rhetoric. Where I was like 12 and my teacher... I, so it's like my, I, was, I was one of those kids, just to preface, that would uh, carry all my books all the time because I was too afraid to be late for class. You know, one of those. We all knew that kid and that was me. <laughs> and uh, I arrive in, little 12-year-old, I'm super nervous. And the teacher's like, I think it's Irish. She's too Irish in business. I'm calling her out on this podcast. <laughs> um, she, she starts the class by going, I'm a bitch and I hate you all equally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my little heart, I was terrified. I'm definitely not creating a culture where you're like, hmm, maybe we should have some kind of interesting discourse. And uh, anyway, there was, like, I don't know how many classes in, but there was a girl in my year group. And she said, the teacher said to her, if you were a slug in my garden, I'd squish you. Yeah. And it's always stuck with me because there was this, because of the culture of complicity, it was, she stood up for herself, the student, which yeah. absolutely she should have, right? Of course. What was the, the time, do you remember the context of like why she said that? Oh, I'm I'm sure it was no, not really, but I'm sure it was un yeah, and in, in no yeah. way is it ever justified to yeah, say that. Of course. I'm sure they were, she was probably just speaking in class, you know, a classic. Mm. Um, but I was, I, but at the time, you know, you're in such a the, the culture is so heavy that you know when she tried to stand up for herself, everyone was a bit irritated or like, oh, give over, it's fine, don't don't piss off the teacher. That's the whole mm. kind of what well, that was in this particular context, and. I was fully complicit myself. I was yeah. like, oh, just let it go, just let it go. It's fine. It doesn't matter. And I think back to that now, and I, it just stays with me, this feeling of like, oh, that needs, that just can't, that needs to be called out. Like something yeah. needs to be said about those kind of things. That, and everyone has a story like that. Everyone has, has seen it or experienced mm. some, some moment where it was just entirely unjustified. And this isn't to call, like there are so many teachers who are, overworked and underpaid and try so hard and really care and value their students and so many also people also have a of a teacher of an incredible or like a story of an incredible teacher they had who yeah. inspired them. but I just think we really need to be thinking about those the the ecology of classrooms in this way like how are we creating these spaces that are facilitating not only rich discourse and and oh and like the framing I mean the framing of education the fact that I mean in Ireland we obviously have the frame of religion in some way right because mm. a lot of it is, is kind of via the church um, but here, sometimes I feel like because we talk about secular education, we're acting as though there's no frame. But there's like obviously a heavy neoliberal frame. I mean, critical pedagogues will talk about this for days. So, yeah, just how we're even talking about the framing of knowledge itself or the fact that we're omitting certain things like, OK, this is what's on the curriculum. Let's talk about what's not. Like, why have we not included these incredible, you know, authors, you know, black writers? What do we <laughs> let's acknowledge? So, yeah, yeah, it is. I think it is. It could be better. Is basically what Literally. I'm trying to say. Oh my god! Three, three, three thoughts here. One, <laughs> I remember telling my, my well, not baby anymore, my twelve year old cousin. I was saying, "Gosh, I wish I got more detentions in school." Yeah. <laughs> I was the same. I was like, I had the amount of times that I wish I would have gave someone a piece of my mind, and I didn't. And yeah. I read, and because I, th I thought it was the end of the world. Like I genuinely thought the world's gonna crumble on me if I was disobedient in some way. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Which is mad. Oh, I had a second one. Oh, the second one was, I don't even know how this is relevant, but it came into my mind about 
not paying attention. And I remember in, I know you've done this module as well, and I talk about this module with everyone. Naomi's my hero. <laughs> Naomi, yes. if you're listening, I still love oh, you. Love you so much. Yeah, truly. And I referenced in my, in like my references on like this critical reflection we did, I was like, and everything that I learned when I wasn't paying attention. You know what I yeah. mean? Oh, oh, because you're saying about things that are on the curriculum and yeah. the the things that really shape us all, you know, give us experiences, which is what this podcast is about. None of it's like, trig- it's not trigonometry. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Uh, yes, absolutely. It's not all just this kind of like, it's so true. I think but the, in terms of this, I mean, I, I, I feel like we keep circumnavigating back to it, but I think it is so interesting, um, especially as, yeah, um, two gals <laughs> are on the podcast. Um, but this idea of being good, I remember once I, I came to Naomi, just, I was just, I was kind of just breaking into nothing. Aww. I was like, I don't know what, I don't know what I'm doing. And she wrote me, um, and I still have it, I'm pretty sure it's in my room somewhere. Um, she wrote on a piece of paper, all she wrote was just, Lily, you do not have to be good. Love Naomi. And I was like, oh, that's, that's it. Like, oh, that's exactly. Yeah. And I, and I try and remember that you do not have to be good. Ah, that's, I mean, and, and fully and back in regards to what you're saying about att- detention as well. And not even, not even for, like, I, I wish I'd got more att- detention for, like you say, it's for those acts of being like, actually, this is unjust. Like, yeah. this is, this is just not okay. This behavior is, is unacceptable. The amount of times I felt so, yeah, like I didn't, I didn't stand up for someone or myself when it was due. <laughs> I know. So. I know. Um, so you spoke a little bit about this, but I think it's important to explore, even though it might be overdone in the education sector. Obviously, schooling is done in this, this neoliberal framework. And, you know, for anyone that's listening and doesn't know what that is, that's kind of like this late stage capitalism, privatisation, big businesses, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and I always think that education tends to be for the very purpose of like producing just workers, just productive yeah. forces in the leap. And I think that undermines any sort of goal that having holistic, you know, I don't know what word to use, quote unquote, good education, I think it prevents that in some way. Do you agree? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I mean, absolutely. Um, I read actually, there was a great quote, I actually have it bizarrely here. And it was like, um, I'm just gonna read it. Uh, Neoliberalism has extended beyond a set of political principles into an ideological way of being, a meta-narrative on an epic scale that claims to offer the right and only answer to the universal problem we face by a particular form of capitalism in which competition is central because it separates the sheep from the goats, the men from the boys, the fit from the unfit. Um, and I, yeah, I know, it's um, it's from a text, uh, it's cited by Moss, um, just to mention that. But I, yeah, I thought this was, this. I think it's the, it's the, the narrative of accountability. So if, the, it, like, let's completely negate the kind of structural inequalities that exist. If we all have the same opportunities to compete, so if you're not succeeding as much, it's on you. Um, I think that definitely is obviously a problem. Um, but actually, this has been super, this has been interesting because we um, I've been working on a on a paper with um, Kira Webster and Dr. Gavin Schwartzleeper. Um, they were in liberal arts. Uh, well, yeah, Gavin still works for the for the faculty. Uh, shout out, shout out to them. <laughs> and uh, we've been looking at this in relation to co-creation because. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So I think, I mean, as you, so I used to work as a co-creation officer with IATO and that was some of the work I was doing. Um, and we kind of, we actually ended up meeting and working together because of the co-creation project. Um, that but... we were like, is this co-creation? <laughs> so ironic. <laughs> so the whole time being like, how do you define co-creation? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so and they were like, this isn't the point of the project. You're not supposed to be critical. <laughs> so funny. Um, but yeah, so, I, so we're writing this paper and uh, one of the things we were looking at was was where where people are looking to get their literature on co-creation in and of itself. Because you have a lot of ideas and kind of models for co-creation in like design literature, um, kind of management, business. Um, but the problem with, is when we when we look towards this, this kind of disciplinary lens, a lot of the time it does become very instrumental and... Um, arguably exploited in many senses. It's like, oh, you know, come get students to co-create with the university um, by getting them to do unpaid labor or give feedback and then tell their friend. You know, it's a lot of this kind of um, Mm. minimal acts being constituted as co-creative in order to kind of reinforce ideas around around the university or the the institution. Um, so we've kind of we've been talking about this idea of how do we how are we creating really critical acts of co-creation? It's it's not just about getting multiple actors in a space. It's about really thinking about what what the aim of of it is in itself and and trying to in this way um, work against some of those kind of that neoliberal rhetoric through thinking about critical pedagogy. So you know Freire, Giroux, obviously Bell Hooks. You know this engaging thoughtfully um, with ideas around like the banking model of education, the dialogics of cultural change. Um, so yeah, all interesting. <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm worried that this might be a bit inaccessible. You know what I mean? The things yeah, we're talking about. But for people that are like listening and they're like, oh, this is really interesting. How can they get started? Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah, I mean, well, the, with these kinds of with these kinds of um, authors and writers, um, 
I mean, I'm trying to think of like, I mean, like on critical pedagogy, teaching to transgress, mm. pedagogy oppressed, we love. Um, so good. But yeah, I think actually, yeah, you you make a really good point. I think, I think, I think, well, actually, one of the, one way I think is, is, is community and conversation, right? So having kind of, having certain kind of groups that you can, you can start to, to ask these questions with. And I think it's actually a part of the beginning of, of any kind of process like this is thinking about thinking about what you're thinking about. So, uh, so starting to, you know, have a, have a question at hand and, and try to come up with as many questions about the question as possible, that kind of thing. Um, but I think, yeah, a lot of the most kind of the most, the richest reflections I've had, whether about education or beyond has been in conversation, you know, with people like you, um, with the, the kind of, uh, people I met in IATL, um, like Naomi, of course, Lanary Pula, um, and just, yeah, in, in, I mean, like I said at the beginning of this, I mean, one of the most, one of the kind of thoughts I was having recently was because of coffee with a friend. So, yeah, I think a lot of the time it's about those kind of conversations and having those spaces where you feel like you can really be reflective and thoughtful. Definitely. And also not being scared about getting things. I don't think you can be wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. You have to, you have to, because I think nothing is, nothing is simple enough that you can answer it in, in a, in like five sentences. So I think if you're feeling like something's off about what you're saying, you're at least onto the crux of a difficult thought. At least you're pushing yourself. You know, I think if you're like, yes, that must be it. Yeah. Uh, then you're not really kind of, it, nothing is, 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 is that easy, I think. But yeah. <laughs> what, what was your journey like with, with critical thinking? Because I was never taught it in school. <laughs> so I kind of had to find my own way there, I guess. Yeah, I mean, so I was also never, I was also never, I mean, it, my, my, in Ireland, the, the system when I was in it was fully about just memorise, memorise yeah. immigrant state, that was it. Um, and so when I came into liberal arts, I remember I did, that was something that I was a bit, I was like, I need to, what did you want me to actually like think about this? Yeah. Um, and I didn't even, I mean, I really felt behind. I didn't even really know what a lens was in terms of, uh, like, if I was approaching a paper through a certain lens. Yeah. I didn't even remember what that meant. Like, I remember standing in an elevator and my, at Gavin, actually, I mentioned him earlier, was chatting to another student and the student, I can't remember exactly what they were saying, but the student was talking about they were going to look at it through a certain, uh, like, a feminist lens or a particular lens. And I remember standing in the elevator being like, oh, shit, I need a lens. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what what is that and I was so embarrassed that I didn't know what, what that meant or um but I I realized I needed to kind of figure out um and I shouldn't have been I shouldn't have been embarrassed but I but that's you know a part of the the unlearning right realizing that actually you don't have to be ashamed for what you don't know yeah you don't you can't possibly know everything and that's it's a part of yeah the process of, of what makes learning an enjoyable thing but um but yeah I definitely I think this idea of I think I think one of the things I'm most grateful for with with IATL and like the kind of work that we we did and the kind of group that we fostered when we worked together was um, was being messy. Like we are human and we're embodied, and uh, sometimes it's just a, a bad day, and sometimes you know we're fragmented beings. Um, and I think sometimes in academia as well, in particular, it, you you can feel like you always have to be on. You know, you always have to be your most reflective thoughtful high-end self and that can make you just I mean it's I feel like academia is just it's just rife with people with fraud complexes for a reason so I think yeah I kind of do I want to I do I I do want to push for a more kind of human (laughs) like the human yeah these environments definitely 
also thinking as you were saying that again I've never had an original thought it was Naomi who put me onto this this idea of like when we were doing our assessments and I think I've spoke about this in the past episode but if you haven't heard it it was like a non-traditional assessment you could basically do whatever you wanted but it was this you know we still had to write like a reflection piece on it and Naomi was talking about don't worry like too much about spelling or grammar because you're communicating you know it's just a way to communicate it doesn't have to be perfect and my mind was like, <laughs> I was like oh my god like why are there strict rules in academia like why do I have to put an oxycomerant why do I have to do this if I'm communicating myself in whatever form I want to surely that's enough yeah. surely I want to be able to swear in my, you know what I mean? I want to be like, and what the fuck was he thinking when he said that? I mean, is anyone listening to me here? Do you know what I mean? And also, but also as well, like when I read, when I do read an article that's written in a in a more human tone, I it, there is something also enjoy because you. I yeah. feel like it actually makes it e- it is more accessible. It's easier to read. You feel as though you're um, you're engaging with the author. Um, and I think I, I I do in this sense. I think as well. It it it. it it means, I think sometimes when, you, when you're also more human in your writing, there's an extent to which it illustrates that you've really been able to concisely articulate the thought. Yeah. Like if you can get a really complex, hard idea concise enough that you can explain it in a really like fun way. I mean, my supervisor is actually, is great for this, to be fair. She, she, she had a, in one of her books, she, she uses the idea of like girls in a bathroom talking about a text from a guy to, to discuss different ways of approaching a text more widely, like the different um, kind of, yeah. yeah. And I, I thought it was, and it made it, it made it make sense to me, you know, that kind of thing. And um, so I definitely think, yeah, we need to be, yeah, bringing these kinds of human. Definitely. So, so it's, yeah, you know. It's difficult. Um, I want to pivot slightly. I want to do a bit of theorizing since I love a bit of theory. And <laughs> obviously one of your interests is kind of like psychoanalytic theory in relation to education. That sounds incredibly interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about it? I can. So this actually, this is really, um, I mean, my sister, it's my sister, my sister actually studies psychoanalysis for her master's. So this would be kind of, she'd be primed to discuss. I, I have to um, get her on next. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I, I suppose it, I, I was interested in um, kind of Winnicottian ideas. So Donald Winnicott talks about um, this notion of like the holding environment. And I was interested in that and the idea of like the good enough mother, um, which in itself has had its own kind of contestation um, because it, it's quite, so basically Winnicott came along and felt as though uh, psychoanalysis was being far too like esoteric. It wasn't really, it wasn't being accessible in this way we were talking about. And so he wanted to, he kind of started like a radio show for mothers, but he like spoke towards mothers, but he had this idea of the good enough mother, which, which different people have different feelings about. Um, but it's essentially that you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be good enough. You just, yeah. you just, you just, there's like a baseline and that's in order to kind of create an environment that children feel um, secure in. And it's the, the holding environment, it's, it's kind of, I'm going to not do this justice in an explanation because my brain's barely here, but it's, um, it's the idea that, you know, if children are a big, bundle of impulses and messiness and um they need an environment that can kind of contain them in a way so that they so that they can be kind of they need the need the the parent needs to be able to kind of hold the the messy feelings they're having as they're like taking in the stimuli um and a part of that is is you know through kind of boundaries and uh and 
so I was interested in in these ideas in relation to like the good enough teacher. Like it's not you don't no teacher can be perfect. You can't be perfect every day, but there's just a base level of like consistency and an environment that is able to hold students enough that they're able to test the boundaries of the space. Like I can like being able to test yourself further in terms of exploring ideas and thoughts and knowing that you can kind of question and be critical without feeling afraid, like panicked or that the environment is going to um, be inconsistent with you. So one minute you ask a question and it's fine. And the next suddenly it's an issue. And then you're like, oh, okay, I'm just spending the whole time just trying to read the teacher or the space. Like what can I and can't I ask or, or think or say? Um, and so I think that was something that I was interested in, in terms of like the, the ecology of classes. Um, I've kind of delved into Lacan a little bit. My sister's kind of far more knowledgeable about Lacan, but, um, but yeah, in, in terms of, and this is my, my supervisor's Lacanian and looking at it, looking at him in relation to, um, to, to text, uh, which is cause he kind of, he looks a lot at, at the lang- at language essentially, um, so yeah, and I was kind of looking at Laura Mulvey recently, who's kind of who, used, who draws on Lacan to look at um, ideas around the male and female body in cinema um, and like points of view, yeah. um, which was yeah super interesting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> do you ever do much on like architecture and like physical spaces? I when I was so when I was uh, working as a co-creation officer, we were interviewing students and staff at the university around co-creation and in that there was some reference to this idea I mean space and place you know what makes a space a, a place um and there was some I, I kind of was thinking more about how we create physical spaces that are facilitative so you know a space that's open that's adaptable flexible um sitting in circles like the idea of the structure of a space obviously if you're all directed towards a teacher that tells you something about how you how you're being invited to perform in that space um, and also as well, the fact that now we have online spaces. So if I'm in a space and I feel like I don't want to be there, I can, I can protest the physical space by entering into this virtual space. I mean, there's all these kind of layers now to our, to our absence and presence. Um, but yeah, and the, one of the, one of the interviewees in the research talked about the idea of, um, you can, you can tell an, an environment that is, that is, um, trying to facilitate co-creative work by having those kind of outdoor environments where there's like circles and benches and tables. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I definitely think you can walk along a campus and, and almost get a sense of the culture of knowledge co-creation by how it's designed. Um, but that'd probably be the, yeah. Like, but what about, I mean, what about you? What, what's your, the, what's only, your the only reason I brought it up is because I don't even know when it was brought up to me. No, I remember why, because um, when I was in school, we had this school and we had it for like the whole time I was there. This school was crumbling apart, right? It was crumbling apart, but we loved it. It didn't matter. Like the building would literally <laughs> shake in the wind, but we loved it, right? Anyway, they built this new school and someone made a joke like about how the architecture, the same architect designed female prisons in Sweden. This was this joke. I never thought about it. And in the new school, if you Google my school, which I won't put out there because I don't want to throw too much shade, and at female prisons, they're literally the same architecturally. <laughs> literally. It is like a panopticon of like, everyone is watching everyone. It's all glass. So teachers can watch other teachers. Students can watch other students. And if you walk up down the hallway for any reason, you could just get like eyes. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, and I was like, a school's been designed this way now is this happening and I never knew while I was in it 
but I've always wanted to go back and being like, what were you thinking? But yes, they're like the surveillance culture. That's so yeah. interesting. Isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I don't, yeah, yeah. I, that is, I, I mean, I think, I think in, in today's world as well, there's something, there is something about how we surveil each other as well in terms of like, in terms of like, because of social media and the way yeah. we online. Um, so there is something about the fact that you know that, you know, you can be in like the queue and somebody, I mean, this, I mean, I'm using this as an example because it, it happened. It's like a minor thing, but like I was in a long queue and there's at least three different people who went to film the queue, obviously to send to a friend to be like, look how long this queue is, but you're inevitably then in these videos. But I think it's, it is wild that you are constantly being like you, I read something recently and it talked about this idea of like digital omnipresence. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really eerie. It's the idea you're never in today's world, you're always, you're never absent, you're always digitally omnipresent. <laughs> but yeah, this idea of the kind of yeah, surveillance and how we're actually designing spaces around it that's fascinating. I know, right? Can, can I ask you though, like in the in the similar vein of like the first question, if you've engaged with any ideas recently that you that you find or thoughts oh i have one but it's pretty like it's not friendly and i'll talk to anyone about actually there's probably loads did an essay on um mass incarceration in the u.s and stuff and i was reading loads of foucault obviously because he comes in everywhere (laughs) he talks about i think his one of his books is about punishment i can't remember what it's called but um he talks about how um the removal of state of like state executions and violence in public was a bad move because when you had public executions, people would riot. They would be like, that is absolutely unfair. You shouldn't be allowed to treat people that way. And then when they move to prisons and mass incarceration, there's like a physical divide between state violence and the public. Yes. And then obviously you can see examples of state violence in public. I mean, you know this this it, which mixes with the race which mixes with gender mixes with so many different things but it's not like often enough or it's contained within pockets that you can't get a mass uprising against it so basically he's saying that like state violence needs to be checked but it's not going to be because no one can see it anymore yeah that's that's yes so interesting i think i mean i think did it um i, I think i was looking at something around this um, but around the same time as the, um, the like in, institutionalization, essentially, because then it was just like you just have these suddenly you have these like buildings of mm. the idea of the mad or the, mm. the bad. Um, so it's like we just we just pocket people away, and then whatever happens in those like hidden spaces is is out of out of sight, out of mind idea. But yeah, that's super interesting that you suddenly it's like no, there's no there's no like the the public forum. But then but then there's the it's interesting the extent to which like in today's world, uh, like social media spaces become a kind of public forum yeah, for so true. To, to discuss what was, um, what what's being hidden. Mm, definitely, because, you know, there's leaked prison videos, there's yeah. obviously people film violence on the streets now, there's been whole movements based off of, you know, a video. Yeah. Which is incredible. Um, the other thing, although now my mind's going into so many different things. <laughs> oh, there's two other things. I'm reading a book on, it's called We Too, and it's essays by sex workers. And I was going through this like mental battle of if I was like pro or against the legalization of sex work. Cause I'd done some reading on how if you, if you criminalize sex work, um, it, it can help stop trafficking in certain countries. It's like in Sweden, men are prosecuted if they engage in, uh, if they 
engage with a prostitute. And in Amsterdam, for example, where it's legalized, these are like these safe pockets for for traffickers, basically. So I was like, oh no, maybe I'm anti like legalizing sex work. And I was like, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? And then I read an article about how being pro-sex work is like throwing women into the hands of the patriarchy. And it's a very radical feminist idea, obviously, because it's like, it's difficult because like women are not commodities. And if you normalize this idea that like they can be bought in certain ways, I understand where that is coming from. But I'm reading this book and it's making me unlearn everything. <laughs> but, but now I'm like, because these sex workers that are writing these essays, I, they're incredible. And I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm so, I don't even know where to go with it anymore. That's, I, well, I, I, yeah, that's so interesting. I love, um, I love the, I mean, the, the process, right? The, the, like, mm. the not knowing and being kind of messy in the middle, I think is, is super valuable and interesting. Um, yeah, that's really, I mean, I think this, I think in these ways, like things like OnlyFans is kind of an interesting mm. conversation. it's like taking having that kind of a gentle ownership over the practice um again yeah really but then yeah I don't know I also I I think that's a really difficult um difficult one to position in but super interesting yeah it's a bit of a dilemma and also like there's so many people that talk about why feminism often fails because there's too many different strands and we can't be united which I think you can problematize in itself yeah but it is interesting how like within one movement there's so much disagreement yeah but that's gonna be naturally isn't it yeah that's I mean I suppose it also comes down to this idea I suppose because it's like what um like in in, in the same way which we talked earlier about what constitutes a child like what const- what is a woman you know what, what you know that's that's gonna, there's that fundamental question is going to inevitably stem so much um Literally. I mean one of the things I have become interested in recently though um I kind of talk, talk about my friends in a way that I think is is great is uh the kind of the I mean like the idea of pick me culture so like not mm. being not like a girl yeah, um yeah, but cool. I think I think I was oh I was definitely when I was in school the you're a pick me girl oh I look back and I'm like oh that was terrible <laughs> <laughs> um but I think but I think it's I think it's wonderful that it's being that it's being that I understand it better, right? The, I understand, um, and that because I think it it dis- it's fundamentally at your own detriment and disempowerment, and it disenfranchises you to um, because it makes you believe that women aren't your allies. Like I mean, fundamentally, that's so just kind of really yeah. discovering. Actually, no, I like if someone if a, if a guy was to say to me now, like you're just different to other girls, I'd be like, hold on a second, what do you think a woman is? Like yeah. let's work backwards. But I think it's great. I think that it's great that like young, you know, teenage girls today are being really encouraged to recognize other women and and um, as their as their allies, as their support. I love. I yeah. I love how it's moving. And I'm and I'm saying I look back on on all the kind of the classic teenage pick me literature. Uh, <laughs> I was reading um, Daniel Handler's. Um, I think it's why we broke up for for a class. Um, and it was yeah, definitely within this ilk. And I just thought, oh, it's it's so great not to be um to be in that <laughs> to be in that in the way that I I grew up in it I, I mean we all we did we all grew up in this kind of um state of you have to somehow be different to women mm-hmm. and then it was always the most kind of um it was uh, therefore women were constantly being defined in kind of derogatory terms in the first place 
yeah interesting I always think like what is it for though am I doing this for a man a man yes you know what I mean you don't really think about it seriously what it was the yeah that makes me laugh like (laughs) is it worth it it never is Mm -mm. never he's never good enough boom (laughs) too good for the man I swear (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's a good note to end on bit of bit of misandry to end the podcast So I'm gonna funny. lose all of my one male audience, which is my partner. <laughs> he's like, I've had enough with your shirts. He's it all the time. <laughs> oh my god, I love it! I love it so much. It's so funny. Hello all, I am super excited to announce that I've never had an original thought has its first sponsor. When the team at Twipes reached out asking if I wanted to collaborate, well, you know that I absolutely had to say yes because we're all about being sustainable, you know, doing our best to reduce our environmental impact and reduce our waste here on the pod. And Twipes helps us to do exactly that. They are truly biodegradable and flushable toilet wipes. Now I've used them for their intended purpose and I found them to be super. They're infused with aloe vera, so they're very fresh and honestly with it being around easter time anyone that knows me knows i eat like a five-year-old so my hands are always covered in chocolate and i can just use them and not have to worry about my impact on the planet because i just clean them up and they work super effectively so yeah they're really great honestly they vanish within three hours i think which again is just amazing the science behind is phenomenal so if you're interested in learning a bit more about them or if you would like a sweet 33 percent off for the time being which again incredible discounts got your whole third off there all you need to do is head over to twipes.uk forward slash becky to claim the discount so that's t-w-i-p-e-s dot uk forward slash becky with two c's b-e-double-c-y to get a whole third off so thanks again for the team at twipes for doing the amazing work and thank you for supporting the pod Um, there's a final question then. What do you think people should talk more about and what do you think people should talk less about? Um, I think we should talk more about... Um, I think we should talk... Honestly, I think we should talk more about just our general messiness and just our generally fragmented senses of self. I think the fact that we're not like we're all just doing our best I think there's something just I think I I think if we could create a culture that felt more like that I it would be easier to breathe most days um I think we should talk less less isn't less is a harder one because I think when we talk about anything there is something interesting like I could say something generic like we should talk less about you know certain kinds of you know like the Kardashian culture as an example but even that I think we do need like there's an extent to which talking about it it is fruitful but then also, I, th- I suppose anything that materializes a negative consequence, like we should stop talking less, we should, we should talk less about um, children as godly, or it's something like this, like we should talk less about something, but it, that the ramifications of it is in and of itself. Yeah, just can be harmful. <laughs> yeah, not helpful. Yeah. Um, but I can't think of anything specific, but along that line of thought. Answer. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh no, thank you so much for having me. And thank you again for listening to another episode of I've Never Had an Original Thought. If you want to keep up with the podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at notanogthoughtpod. And yeah, reach out, let me know what you thought of the episode. And if you're feeling extra kind, you can rate us five stars, or subscribe to the podcast or follow. 
Um, but apart from that, have a lovely week and I will see you next time. Also, I hope you learned something. That's what I hope your main takeaway was. At least you learned something. Okay, lots of love. Speak next time. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.